All right, let's see. Oh, check, check, one, check, one. All right, that's, that's nice and clear, right? One of the announcements that we forgot to include, not Jason's fault, my fault, because I didn't create a slide, there is a worship night this Friday. So there is going to be a corporate gathering in the midst of four churches that are participating to produce this worship night. Our church is one of them. It's going to be hosted at Radiant Church. It is on Boniface. The newsletter is going to go out on Tuesday. All of the details will be included. But if you're interested in attending, just open your phone, mark your calendar for Friday night, the corporate worship at Radiant Church. If you have a Facebook account, you can probably find the event on Facebook. All right, well, are we excited to be here? During the three-minute break, I was walking around asking everybody if they were ready to go in, because today we're going in to the water with Jonah. I guess I'll keep my day job. I'm not a comedian. (laughs) Didn't. Nobody liked that joke. All right. I came up with that one on my own, as you can tell. (laughs) That's right. Stick to the script, Jen said. Stick to the script. All right, well, how about this? Why don't we pray, and then we'll open up God's Word, and we'll see what it is that God has to say to us through His Word today. So, Father, we bow our heads in reverence, asking that you would be present today. Lord, we know that your Spirit dwells in us. We're asking that your spirit would also be in the move, on the move in our midst. And Father, we have evidence that you are already clearly doing that. You gave a conviction to Jenna. You gave her the strength and the boldness and the courage to share that message. And God, we pray your blessing on her for that. We pray that the words that she spoke would encourage those who needed to hear that. We are never alone. And this is going to become a very clear reality in what it is that we're studying today. And so, Father, we thank you that you are omnipresent, that you are in all places at all times. Not only are you omnipresent, but you're omnipotent. You have authority and power over all things. The created order, the Word of God tells us, is held together by the power of your Word, and we know that your Word created all that exists. We know that you're omniscient, Lord, that you know all. We know that man is mocked and man is deceived and man is manipulated, but God is not mocked. God is not deceived and God cannot be manipulated. And so Father, we thank you that you are omnibenevolent because you are out in pursuit of us. Another reality that is going to become very clear in the midst of our study. Your heart is for the nations. You have a desire to be in right relationship with the creation that was fractured and broken in relationship away from you. And so you went to great lengths to redeem us and to rescue us and to reconcile us. So Father, we're asking this morning that your will would be done. All that I say, Lord, that is not of you, let it fall by the wayside. All that I have to say, Lord, that is of you, Let it go deep into the good soil of our hearts, producing fruit. Good fruit from good trees. That's our desire in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So today, we are in Jonah chapter 1, verse 4 through 16. I was telling my wife, this is the largest portion of Scripture that I've ever preached, hands down. So I hope you guys brought your lunch. Everybody laughed at that joke. (laughs) So let's turn to the text. Jonah chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 4. Our author writes, we're reading from the ESV if you're reading along. Our author writes, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners who were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship out into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and then he laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. I want to pause right here. We talked about this in our opening sermon. The word evil has a spectrum of definitions, and we need to be aware of it. This is the definition of calamity, not moral evil. They're experiencing calamity on the waters. But this is not an act of moral evil. And we need to be aware of that. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I love this story. It's like, just exciting, you know? Like, you read it, we talked about this in the introduction, and you're like, no freaking way. Are you kidding me? I can't believe that happened. 
And then you're like, wait. This is a part of the text of Scripture, so I have to take this seriously. Church, are we in hot pursuit of what it is that the author was intending to communicate? Or are we in submission to the traditions that have been preached from the pulpit that actually aren't grounded in the text of Scripture? That's a good question, and we're going to hopefully answer that this morning. Now, this is the third sermon in our series on the book of Jonah. Week number one, we both read and listened to the book in preparation for our study. We took the time to work on the dual discipline of listening and reading, and we talked about that. If you weren't here for sermon number one, it's on YouTube. Go watch it. We spent time exploring questions in that study. Like, what is the book of Jonah? <laughs> is the book of Jonah unique in the midst of the minor prophets? And if it is, why? These are all questions that we sought to answer that morning. And when we were done, we spent time tackling some modern misconceptions. And when we dealt with the misconceptions... We attempted to place Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from northern Israel, into space and time, and we did this so that we as a church could properly respond to the question, who is Jonah? Because <laughs> if you're going to read the book of Jonah, you better be able to answer the question, who is Jonah? After dealing with that, we identified the city of Nineveh on a map. And we did this in connection to Geth Hefer. Geth Hefer is the hometown of the prophet Jonah. Northern Israel, north of Samaria. And we also plotted it on the map in connection to the potential locations of Tarshish. We closed out our study in week one by addressing topics such as who is the author, knowing that nobody can actually answer that question. What are the potential dates for when the book was written? We talked about the early options and the late date options. I'm a fan of the late date options. We talked about Old Testament intertextual connections and New Testament intertextual connections. And then most importantly, we touched on the theology of the book. Week one was a highly informational sermon. But we need to do that. Otherwise, we're going to walk our way through the book lost the entire time. Now, week two, we navigated our way through the first three verses in chapter one, hence why we started in verse four today. Now, we ended our study in week two by addressing the reality that Jonah's rebellious behavior, his sin, look, we ain't going to tap dance around it. People sin. People fall short of the glory of God. And if you're not in right relationship with Jesus Christ, your future is not with him. In the end, he's going to give you exactly what you want. You want him? He says, you can have me. Put your faith in me and the work that I did. You don't want me? Well, I'm going to give you what you want because your whole life you lived it in rebellion to me so I will reward you by shaming you and giving you what you want and what you want you proved with your entire life, not me. <laughs> so have it. He's not going to force you into the kingdom. He's already invited you into the kingdom.
Jonah was a rebellious man. And his rebellion placed him on a downward spiral. Anybody ever been there? I lived the majority of my life on a downward spiral. Some of you might not know that about me. I'm 41. I got saved when I was almost 30. The majority of Matt Oberlander's life was dominated by the sin nature. Now I wage war with the sin nature. I hope to lose less battles in the future than I've lost as I keep my eyes on Christ. Anybody there with me? Look, we're all sinners. That's why the text deals with sin. (laughs) We're not going to, oh, seeker friendly, come on in everybody, and just Jesus loves you. Yeah, and you know what he said? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not obey my commands? If you love me, do the things that I command. All authority has been given to me, so quit acting like you don't have any because I gave you that authority when I gave you the Spirit and start walking in the Spirit and start keeping in step with the Spirit and start living by the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, nobody wants to hear that today. The door swings both ways, everybody. Nobody's forcing you to be here today. But I'm not going to compromise the gospel because I'm going to stand before God one day and he's going to be like, Matt, we're going to talk about all the things that you said. Every word that I speak, he's going to hold me accountable for. I'd rather please my Father in heaven than make friends with people on earth. Are we there, church? (laughs) We're going in today. (laughs) Oh, he's yelling. I'm not mad. I ain't mad at anybody. I'm passionate. I believe the gospel is the truth. So I am going to defend it with my life. And you can't walk out of here going, that guy don't love God. You can't. You just can't. I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. But you can't walk out of this room saying, that guy doesn't believe a word he speaks. That's just the reality of the situation. So if you don't like my passion, come back a few more times and you'll get used to it. My wife puts up with it every day. (laughs) It's possible. It's possible. Look, Jonah's rebellion had him on a downward spiral where he was willfully traveling in the direction of chaos and death. That's a message for somebody in here. Somebody in here is living their life willfully on a downward spiral, and I'm here to tell you that's going to end you nowhere good. Chaos and death is your future. But guess what? God has given you the freedom of choice. He has set before you life and death, and his encouragement is to choose life. Now, having reminded us of where we've been over the last couple of weeks, I figured that we could open up today's study with a simple outline. How about we prime the pump of our mind so that we can get ready for the study today? So let's talk about a simple outline. Let's look at a graph of a simple outline. My hope is that we would walk away with a better grasp of the book as a whole. We're reading a book in the Bible. It's one book in a 66-book library, okay? Nobody in here is familiar with the entire Bible. If you're familiar with the entire Bible, then you're familiar with a 66-book library, and you could take my job. We forget more than we remember. Do we, are we aware of that? We look in the mirror, the Scripture says, and as soon as we turn away, we forget what we see. 
I can hear a song that I used to jam on the radio, baby, and I haven't listened to it in 10 years, and every word will come out of my mouth. And I'm like, what verse is that again? What chapter is that again? I know I've read that book before. (laughs) So we're here to prime the pump of our mind. Let's get a grasp on the outline of the book because it's important. We need to think about an outline like a blueprint, right? Uh, An outline is an aid. It's a tool in our tool belt. Any construction workers in the house? Who goes to work without their tool belt? You get fired for that, right? (laughs) Yeah, unless you're a boss or a journeyman or you're a foreman and you're like overseeing the job, you know. But then you earned the right to take your tools off and tell the guys who wear their tools that they got to keep them on. And when they need your help, you're there to lend them aid. That's what a good foreman would do. So let's be, good, uh, let's be good students of the text today and let's look at the outline. Now scholars break the book of Jonah down into two nearly equal halves. You got the first half and you got the second half. Scenes one and three, four and six talk about Yahweh's interactions with Jonah. Scenes two and five deal with Jonah's interaction with pagan Gentiles. Scene two, that's our text for today. Jonah's going to be interacting with pagan sailors, most likely Phoenician. They dominated the seafaring age in the ancient Near East, but it could have been a mixed bag of a crew. And in scene five, Jonah is interacting with the Ninevites in the great city of Nineveh. Don't get it twisted. It's not the capital city of Nineveh. Not yet. It will be, but it's not the capital until long after Jonah's life. That's why it's referred to as the great city. A lot of people talk about it as if it is the capital. It was, but not during Jonah's life. So, having discussed the importance of an outline, got a visual of it, let's take some time to talk about nautical trade, maritime trade in the ancient Near East. Now first, we're going to deal with another modern misconception, okay? We're going to correct the way that we've probably all been thinking. And it's, look, it's fine. We say this frequently. It's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to find out the truth and have a desire to stay wrong. Okay? Nobody knows everything. So the, the misconception, right? Let's deal with it. In her lectures, so let's stand on the shoulders of the scholars. In her lectures on the book of Jonah, Dr. Sandra Richter destroys the myth that sailors in the ancient Near East only sailed along the coastline. It's a myth that they sailed or made a practice of sailing, hugging the shoreline. It's a myth that they anchored their ships at night. This is not true. Now, we used to believe this. And we used to believe it because we didn't have the data to believe anything else. But these men were experienced sailors who bravely traversed the open sea, specifically the Mediterranean, what we're talking about. Now look, we have the modern discipline of underwater archaeology to thank for the destruction of these myths. And if you want the data, it's out there. Let's look at a couple of slides. I love archaeology. I, I mean, I love it, right? It's, a, it's like a, what do they call engineering in the world of science? It's an applied science. Archaeology is an applied science. This is a relief that comes from Queen Hatshepsut's mortuary temple. That means that's where her sarcophagi lay, okay? You want to know what's cool about Queen Hatshepsut? She was the only woman pharaoh in all of Egypt, okay? 
It sounds like uh, Egypt was egalitarian for a little while, y'all. <laughs> now, the most important thing about this slide is the dates, okay? These dates predate the life of Jonah by somewhere between 500 and 600 years. That's a long time, right? And this relief shows us a ship being loaded by different types of crewmen with live plants and all types of jars with different things in it. And then we've got other things like this might be an animal right here. We've got an animal right here. You know, we've got the fish in the sea, slaves going into the slave trade. So let's, let's put up the next slide. Let's read an English translation of what came off of this relief. The loading of the ships very heavily with the marvels of the land of Punt. All goodly fragrant woods, heaps of myrrh resin with fresh myrrh trees, with ebony and pure ivory, with gold, green gold of Amu, with cinnamon wood, kesset wood, and amut incense, setter incense, eye cosmetic, ladies. <laughs> oh, Sephora was in business back then. Apes and monkeys. Dogs, the skins of the southern panther, and with natives and their children. This line kills me because it talks about the reality that the human slave trade was actively thriving this long ago in world civilization. Might have been for the men. Yeah, uh, you know. I don't know, like, when I read the book of Esther, it talks about her having months, 12 months worth of, like, um, ointment baths and preparation and she could have all of the cosmetics and the clothing that she wanted when she went in to see the king. But if we consider Egypt and what we know about Egypt, this might have been for the males. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about the ancient Near East, we're talking about a large span of time, okay? So when I crack a joke like, hey, lady, Sephora's in town, that's, you know, that's less than literal, you know? But that's a great question. Ask your questions, okay? If you have a question, don't raise your hand. Just ask your question. Because if your question doesn't get answered, you're going to forget it, and then you're going to be like, well, that pastor never answered my question. And I'm going to remind you, you never asked. <laughs> All right? <laughs> okay, so we're back here. Now, I want you to think. Ask yourself the question. Tom, this question is for you, bro. When you have a... When you have an inventory list, right, I'm a business owner, when you have an inventory list that, that is this deep and this intricate, ask yourself, how deep do you think the hull of a ship needs to be to carry all of these things efficiently, okay? We know these boats, thanks to underwater archaeology, are approximately 50 feet in length. The war boats are about 75 feet in length, and they're more narrow, faster, easier to maneuver. But these boats were shorter and wider. Think about how much deck space is on a boat like this. Remember you asked in sermon number one if Jonah would be able to see what was going on on the deck once he was thrown in the water? Not on a vessel of this size. Just think about it. You know, these are not rowboats. And then think about this is five to 600 years before the life of Jonah and ask yourself, how much does technology advance in five to 600 years? And how much more efficient and effective did the vessels and the crews get when, by the time Jonah was on the scene? 
These are all very important questions that we need to be asking ourselves. Why? Why are these important questions that we need to be asking ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. No, but that implies that on a large vessel, you can have a, not just storage space, but you can have men under the deck of the ship where the oars go out, right? And then the man stands, boom, 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 row, boom, 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 row, right? And so you gotta think about there are multiple types of vessels that sail the sea, okay? And so it doesn't mean that it was a boat that you could just, it wasn't that kind of boat. They didn't have motors, but they have sails. And so, yeah. And this is an artistic recreation of the relief. It's not a photo of the relief, but it accurately depicts what is on the relief nonetheless. So here's the deal. Absolutely. Slaves could have been rowing to their own destiny, you know? I mean, why would the merchants row when they got slaves on the boats? You know, all of these things are context determines meaning. And we have to think about the time frame that this book was written in. So we're looking at the Biblos ship. The Biblos, uh, the name Biblos was the, the name of a city in the Levant. History teaches us that the merchants of these cities were well known for their trade with, you guessed it, the nation of Egypt. Hence, the reason why they made it into the relief. So when we think about placing Jonah into space and time, which we have been working very hard to do, right? We need to understand that talking about this kind of stuff is helpful because it places him into the expanding and expansive economic system of the ancient Near East. So now we plotted Jonah on a map. We put Jonah on a timeline and now we've placed him into an economic system in world history. Three ways that we can say Jonah is a historical character. Okay, so we've talked about uh, the importance of an outline, and we've talked about the importance of understanding maritime trade, nautical trade in the ancient Near East. I've got one last thing that I wanna touch on, and then we're gonna get into our verse-by-verse -verse breakdown. The author of Jonah uses personification, okay? In our opening series, we talked about some of the church believes that Jonah's a historical, well, all of the church believes Jonah's a historical character. Some people believe the book of Jonah is a historical account, and others believe it's a proverb, okay? So one of the things that we need to be aware of, wherever you stand on the, on the spectrum, because I don't care, as long as your theology on the book is right, I don't care what you think about Jonah. You know? What you believe about Jonah doesn't affect how you view creation and the life, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation narrative of Christ. <laughs> okay? So here's the deal. We need to talk about personification because the author of Jonah uses personification. And if it's a strictly wooden historical account, I don't know how you're going to justify personification. In the book of Jonah, take it or leave it, the first character to react to the storm is the ship. Everybody laughs, right? 
It was the ship who reckons to wreck. Now, it may seem strange to us that an author would endow a ship with the ability to think, giving it personality so that it might consider to or threaten to break up. However, the personification of the ship is justifiable in terms of a common belief held by ancient Mediterranean seafarers that believed ships were infused with the spirit guardian of a deity. Now, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think of every single ship that you've seen in a historical, like, National Geographic magazine or online doing your research for, for school. Think of every his, picture of every historical ship you've seen, and then think of all of the movies that Hollywood made that are semi-historically correct, and ask yourself, what's on the front helm of the ship? It's an icon, and that icon is cut with eyes and ears and a mouth, and it's... It's molded or it's put to the front of the ship. Why? So that it can go before the ship and protect the ship and its crew from the deity of the chaotic sea. That's what it represents. Eyes, ears, and mouths. It can hear what's going on. It can see the waters and it can communicate to the chaotic deity of the sea on behalf of the ship and its crew. And if the culture didn't craft the icon and put it there, at minimum, they painted the eyes, ears, and mouths on the fronts of the vessels. You got to think about the audience that the letter was written to and what they believed and what they thought was real. So here's the deal. How do we think about that as biblical, you know, Christians? Well, in the case of Jonah, it is Yahweh who conspires with both the wind and the sea to foil the prophet's attempted escape. We know this. Look at the text. It's on the screen. It appears that the ship, like the wind and the sea, choose to partner with Yahweh as yet another accomplice in thwarting Jonah's flight. Can you picture it, saints? Jonah goes down to Joppa, and he enlists the help of the wind and the sea and the ship so that he might get away from Yahweh, and in the end, all three turn on him in submission to Yahweh's sovereign authority. It's crazy, right? The literary device of personification, which is all throughout the text of Scripture, the author uses this to juxtapose the reality that the created order is more compliant to the will and word of God than the prophet of God is compliant. And that's when I was like, ah, that's me. <laughs> the created order is more compliant to the will of God and the word of God than me. Oh, man, I've got a lot in common with Jonah. There's nothing to be proud of, but it is the reality nonetheless. Can you guys read this next slide out loud for me, please? It's with these opening words of the second scene that the author makes it clear that the Lord has decided to pursue his servant by way of a great storm. Let's just stop there, saints. That's a word for somebody in here. Do you know that God has the prerogative to pursue all of us and the means that he can choose is to bring a great storm into our lives? It's wild. 
think about the text of Deuteronomy. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life, God says. Had Jonah been obedient to the will of God, there would have been no need for Yahweh to hurl a great wind. Now, Uriel Simmons notes that the phrase hurled a wind appears only here in the book of Jonah. However, we must remember that in the text of Scripture, the wind often functions as a divine weapon in the hand of Yahweh. The Hebrew Scriptures offer many examples of both protection and punishment. So I'm going to need two readers to volunteer. Who wants to read Exodus 14, 19 through 22? Any volunteers? All right, Jenna, come on up here. The microphone is right here. Exodus 14, 19 through 22. I need another reader. Exodus chapter 15, verse 8 through 10. Who wants to read that one? Who's, who's doing it? Okay. Jason is? Oh, all right. All right, so come on up, get in line. Everybody turn there in your Bibles if you want. To follow along because these verses are not on the screen. Exodus chapter 14, verse 19 through 22. Let me give them a little context real quick before you start to read. So this is the Exodus narrative. The 10 plagues have already happened. God has delivered Israel from Egypt. Israel is traveling. They're stopped at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's like, wait a second. I changed my mind, yo. I'm not letting these slaves go. I don't want to reclaim them. Call the charioteers, send them out there, and destroy them in the wilderness. And that's where we're going to pick up right now. Go ahead, Jenna. Then the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud, along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Therefore, the one who did not approach the other all night. Then Moses reached out with his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thank you. So here we have some more misconceptions. Everybody seen the cartoons? Moses just steps up and like, dun, da, da, dun, and the water's like, sorry, church. <laughs> That's bad theology. It says that the cloud that was leading them how do you think that moved? You think it might have, maybe the wind carried the cloud <laughs> to the rear? That's how it works in our world, <laughs> right? And then it sits between them and Egypt so that nobody can break through, not from Israel to Egypt or Egypt to Israel. And then what happens? All night the east wind blows. You want to know why the ground was dry? It wasn't dry because it split immediately and God made it dry. It was dry because the wind blew all night long separating the water and drying the ground. That's what the Bible says. So deal with the Bible. And if somebody taught you differently, call them and be like, why did you deceive me? <laughs> the point of this story is that God uses wind to protect Israel. 
He used the wind to move the cloud. He used the wind to split the sea so that they could cross and get away from the enemy that was in hot pursuit of them. Amen? So here we have an example of the wind being used as a weapon in the hand of the Lord who is the God of war, according to Exodus. I love that. You don't like the conquest narrative, everybody? You ain't going to like the second coming. That's what I'm here to tell you. Well, I don't like the conquest narrative. (laughs) Yeah, that was the (sighs) warm-up. Well, let's pick it up. Exodus chapter 15, verse 8 through 10. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the seas. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Thank you. So here we are, once again, (laughs) destroying myths personification right here in the Song of Moses. Don't read this literally, that uh, the nostrils of God (laughs) blew. It's not a very pretty picture, but it's graphic illustration of the authority of God. Don't buy into the myth that Pharaoh was after them to bring them back to Egypt and re-enslave them because it says right here, my hand, I will draw my sword with my hand and I shall destroy them. The charioteers were out. Infantry collects up the prisoners. The charioteers, they destroy the enemy. (laughs) You know what was on the outside of the wheels of the charioteers? Spikes that spun. You know what they would do with their whips and with their clubs and with their bows and their arrows as multiple men stood on a single chariot? They were not out there to save Israel and bring them back and enslave them. They were out there to destroy them, (laughs) to cut off Israel from the land of the living. And God said, not on my watch. And you know what he did? He used the wind. The same wind that split the sea, he used that same wind to close the sea. And the charioteers of the Egyptian army sank like lead. So here we have personified narrative examples of God using the wind as a weapon, both protection and punishment. So it's safe to say that in the book of Jonah, Yahweh's doing nothing new, okay? Exodus narrative predates Jonah by a long shot. This is the, yeah. Love it. That's another, that's a recounting of the historical event that took place in and with the people of Israel. So it's safe to say that God's doing nothing new. Look, if the original audience would be able to make these intertextual connections, we, the church, need to be able to make these intertextual connections. We have the same responsibility as the original audience, especially if we desire to know what it was that he was trying to communicate to us. Because the Bible was written to them, 
but it's for us. Okay, so check it out. Whether it's protection or punishment or pursuit, it's God's prerogative. He chooses the means in connection to how he will accomplish his will. So deal with it. Now, let's read the next slide. Go ahead. Now, Old Testament scholar Billy Smith, he observes that fear had gripped these seasoned sailors. Anybody ever been on a fishing charter in Anchorage? Yeah. Praise God, I would assume none of us have had the experience of finding the crew that is responsible for our safety in fear for their lives. You got like one or two minutes, maybe three in these waters out here. Fear is a real thing on the water, especially when you can't see the land. Now notice the fear causes a twofold reaction. First, the men cry out to their individual gods. This sort of response offers some evidence that the experienced sailors believed that this was no ordinary storm. If it was an ordinary storm, they would have just did what they ordinarily did, and they would have done their best to try to get out ahead of it and to clear the cloud coverage, right? But they knew, as experienced sailors, that this was no ordinary storm. And so the first thing they do is they cry out to their gods. Now, John Walton spotlights the statement that each cried out to his god. This may not only refer to the fact that those present worshipped various gods, it also suggests an attempt to invoke one's patron or family deities who will in turn petition their divine superiors, and they will in turn petition their divine superiors, and eventually, if you're lucky, the prayers that you're praying will influence the God responsible for the storm. This is a theology that lacks peace. This is the theology of the pantheon of Hinduism, everybody. Look at these guys, like a shotgun blast. We don't know which one's responsible. Start calling on all of their names. Are you even in a relationship with the God that he cares what you're saying? <laughs> Can you imagine the stress of wondering when faced with certain death if your prayers are even going to ascend to the God that you're crying out to? With Christians and Christianity, we never have to worry about this. We have direct access to the throne room of God's grace. He hears every single word. In fact, the text of Scripture tells us he knows it before we even speak it. Now that's comforting. I bet they could have used a dose of that on the ship in this instant. Like I said, the theology of the pantheon offers no peace in the midst of the storm. The storm in Jonah's life or the storm in the life of any human being for that matter. Now, the men must have felt hopeless, right? Which leads us to their second reaction. They began to jettison the cargo. <laughs> Get it out of here. <laughs> you know why they do that? Because it lifts the boat, taking the weight off, and it helps it to be more buoyant. It's physics. Saints, are we aware of the level of desperation that exists on the deck of this ship? No merchandise, 
No cargo, no payment. No payment means that you are now indebted to the merchants who fronted you the merchandise to sell. In the ancient Near East, if you are in debt, you got two options. Slavery, if it's a favorable outcome, and death, if it is an unfavorable outcome. The level of desperation on this deck was real. And where's Jonah? I mean, where's Jonah at, everybody? He's fast asleep in the hull of the ship. Peter Krieger writes that Jonah's flight from God is one of perpetual descent. He went down. He went down. He went down. He went down. You think the, you think the author's trying to communicate something to the audience here, everybody? <laughs> he's become so disassociated with reality that he's literally unaware of how his sin is now affecting those around him. We could stop right here, church, and we could just spend time right here because our society has bought into the lie that my sin doesn't have any effect on anybody. What I choose to do doesn't affect you, so back up. My body, my choice. I'll do what I want when I want. It's my choice. Get out of my face. What I do, it affects nobody but me. Once again, the book of Jonah, boom. That's a fallacy, everybody. <laughs> talk to the people. Let me talk to the people who love you the most and ask if the decisions that you make in your life have ever harmed them. I know because I drove my parents crazy. My dad says he believes that I took years off of his life because of the decisions that I made. That's rough hearing that. But it's the truth. My dad doesn't pussyfoot around the issue with me. He tells me the truth. It's crazy, yo. We got to get over this low view of sin. Sin. Jonah's sin was about to take the lives of the sailors that were on the boat with him. That means your sin could cost someone else their physical life too. Wake up, church. It's time to get with the reality of the situation. Sin is problematic. Conquer it because you have the spirit. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Now, I want us to stop for a moment and think about the fact that Jonah was asleep. There's lots of theories on this Jonah was asleep idea. You know, like God comes to his prophets in dreams and visions and night visions. So some people are arguing that the revelation of God is going to come again to Jonah. Think about Adam in the garden. All right, God's not putting him to sleep to do surgery. There's no anesthesia required when God's involved, okay? So just get rid of that stupid myth too. God put him to sleep. So that's not what the Hebrew actually says. That's what the English communicates. But it's God putting Adam in like a dream state night vision, no different than he did with Abraham when he cut the barit with him. Look at the Hebrew terminology. It's the same. 
You don't hear preachers going, well, God took some anesthesia and put Abraham down when he walked between the things that were cut so that the covenant could be there. Like, no. No, no anesthesia required when God's involved. Why are we reading modern medical technology into the text of Scripture when they had no idea that that even existed? They would have dreamed about that. So there's all kinds of theories on this Jonah's asleep. Maybe he's just seasick, yo. Maybe he's just really seasick and he's down in the hole with his head between his knees in the fetal position going, I'm so sick of throwing up. I just need to go to sleep. This trip is like 18 months to get from Joppa to Tarshish. I can't believe this. Now, Jonah's asleep, but the crew is literally in and out of the hall, up and down the ladders, grabbing anything and everything, hurling it into the sea. Does this sound like a quiet event to you? It doesn't sound like a quiet event to me. (laughs) I wonder if the crew stumbles across Jonah in their pursuit of emptying out the hall. Now, Douglas Stewart argues that this was the case, noting that the crew would lack the necessary authority to do anything. So they would be required to notify the captain, and of course, the captain does not hesitate to wake up Jonah. Now, Jonah must have felt like he was having a nightmare. The same words he heard in the opening of the book are now being screamed in his, screamed in his face as he attempts to rub the sleep out of his eyes. Arise and cry out! <laughs> it's literally the same. God, is that you? I thought that if I ran from the Holy Land, I'd get away from your voice and you would call someone else. Oh, wait, that's just the captain. What's going on? I mean, he must have thought he was having a nightmare. He can't get away from the voice of the Lord, yo. Anybody ever been there? I'm just doing what I know I should not be doing, and God's like, really. Jonah can't get away from it and you gotta love the irony perhaps the God will give a thought to us are you kidding me bro (laughs) you're priority number one on the mind of Yahweh right now Tim Mackey says he's got you right in his crosshairs you don't know what you're asking for you would probably enjoy it if you were not on the mind of Yahweh right now (laughs) can you see the irony Has anybody noticed that Jonah has yet to speak? Scene one, God commands him to cry out, silence. Scene two, God commands, uh, the captain instructs him to cry out, Jonah gives no response. In both instances, he refuses to open his mouth. What a rebel. Jonah's behavior may be passive in silence, however, it graphically illustrates the full-blown heart of rebellion. That's a word in here for somebody too, yo. You could be keeping your mouth shut and minding your own business, and you could still be in direct violation of God's will for your life. Now, we don't know how much time has passed, but our author is insistent on reminding us of how proactive the crew continues to be in the midst of the raging storm. Come Let us cast lots. Here's what we know. Jonah's awake and he's present for the ongoing conversation. Just look at the close of verse seven. If he wasn't awake and he wasn't present, the lot couldn't have fallen on him. He's also aware that by casting lots, the sailors are seeking some type of divine revelation from the gods so that they may discover the one who's responsible for this great calamity. (laughs) What do you know? 
Amen. 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 There is the juxtaposition against the pagan uh, foreign nationals and the Israelite man of God here, and you'll just see it over and over and over again. And that's a great illustration because if God can use the mouth of a donkey, he can use the captain of a ship. That's right. Yep. One man die. I love it. This is the church coming to life in, my, in front of my face. Like the intertextual connections are just boom, boom, boom. This is a good thing, church. Get familiar with the text of Scripture. Don't be sitting there going, oh, man, we're going to be here so much longer if they keep talking. No, no, we celebrate the fact that people are familiar with the Word of God. If you are going to be cutting down people because they know and study and love their Bible and they can't wait to share that truth with the world, you're in the wrong church, baby. You're in the wrong church. They're casting lots. And what do you know? The lot just so happened to fall on Jonah. Look at it. He wins the lottery. Or maybe he loses it. I don't know. You tell me. In the face of Jonah's silence, Yahweh decides to speak by way of the captain, as Leanna pointed out, and now by way of the lots. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Don't kill me for this, all right? But if the lot determined who was guilty, then what's the point of question number one? <laughs> I mean, seriously, if the lot determined who was guilty, then what's the point of any of the questions at all? <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd imagine that a group of seasoned sailors would have zero issue tossing the guilty party overboard. The Bering Sea is full of people who couldn't pull their weight on a ship, and they got stuffed into a crab pot and dropped into the sea. You know how I know that? Because I know fishermen from the 70s. If it was happening in the 70s here, what do you think was going on in the ancient Near East then? <laughs> They Pat Tillman the dude. Oh, you think because you're a famous football player, you get to front row in the four-man stack on the door? Put him in the number one slot. Poof. Move on. Field promotions in Vietnam happened this way. What did that lieutenant say we're going to do? All right, now I'm the lieutenant. Here's a better plan. Like, this is real life, yo. Do we read the Bible and see this or not? You think that some rough and tough sailors would have a problem chucking Jonah into the ocean? No. So what does this reveal? 
What's the author doing? I think it teaches us that the critical issue was not so much who had sinned, but which God was offended. If you can't figure out which God is offended, then the seas won't stop raging. Notice questions two through five are grounded in identity. The sailors ply Jonah for information, hoping to deduce which God is responsible because nationality and religion were inevitably connected in the eyes of those who live in the ancient Near East. And don't be walking... Go ahead. This is an excellent question. So I didn't put this in my sermon, but lot casting is the only form of divination that is approved within Israel. And unless you side with John Walton, who says the Umin and the Thurman is another version of divination that is acceptable within Israel. Now you think, oh wait, divination is off limits. But diviners were hired to interact with little gods lowercase g gods, the rebellious B'nai Elohim. But when you are trying to talk to Yahweh, who is Elohim, so this is how we say it, Yahweh is Elohim, but not all Elohim are Yahweh, right? So when you're trying to talk to Yahweh under the old covenant, you actually needed an intercessor. You needed the priest to go in on your behalf to make the sacrifice on your behalf. In ancient Israel, not anybody could just go up into the Holy of Holies and beseech God. God could, in, God could, uh, he could condescend to humanity and he could interact with whom he chose. But in Israel, you were, you were required to have the intercessor. And so this is very, very familiar here. And look, uh, Dasha, your question is, is key like, you're probably thinking about Achan, and you're probably thinking about, like, um, uh, you know, like, uh, how the land in Israel was divided at the end of the conquest and stuff. Like, all these things, right? Israel casts lots. The wisdom literature teaches us that the lot is cast, but the decision belongs to Yahweh. Well, here's another one of my soapbox moments. There are people who preach that there's not a single word in the text of Scripture that's not culturally bound. okay. I want to see you start casting lots then because you believe that the, the lot is cast and that, it, that Yahweh brings the outcome. Oh, well, wait, 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 wait. That's another one here <laughs> that's culturally bound to the text of Scripture because none of us cast lots anymore. All right? So what's that? Yeah, but are you doing that when you have to? Yeah, exactly. You know, instead of flipping heads or tails, we should be on our knees because we no longer require the intercessor asking God to make his will plain in our lives because we have access to the throne of God. Yeah. In the New Testament, they did. For Matthias. That's why I said uh, in, in Israel, divination, the only form of acceptable divination was casting lots. But does the church believe that casting lots is an acceptable form of finding out what we should do in our future now? No, this, hap this happened before the Spirit came. You're correct, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's why the casting of lots is a culturally bound instruction in the text of Scripture. Yeah.
Correct. 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 It's the same with David when he's at Keilah and he's like, what do I do? And they bring the ephod, right? Well, how is the priest's garment going to speak to David? But bringing the ephod doesn't come without the priest. <laughs> and then the priest speaks to David on the behalf of God because there was the, in, the requirement of the intercessor. Post-Pentecost, the spirit no longer dwells at Zion in the tabernacle. The spirit now dwells in us. So there is culturally bound instructions in the text of Scripture that we don't abide by anymore. Yeah. Yep. They fast and pray, correct? Yeah, and then lots of names. Yeah, but it was the dedication of themselves to... Well, they sought him by spending time in the word. What is God's will? How has he reflected his character and his nature in the past? Because we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever God did then, he'll consistently do now. And so it's that pursuit, right? How they pursue is it's not a legalistic system. We're under the covenant of grace now. So some pray, some fast, some spend time in the word, some get into solitude, right? Some go for a hike into the mountains. That's where they get alone. Like this is how... This, they're, they're, we're highlighting cultural differences from how the world operated then with Dasha's original question to bring it back to the lots versus how we live now, right? And so these are all great things to talk about because we want to know, right? Like, like I want to know. If the lot casting determines the guilt, what's up with question number one, you know? And so the sailors were unsatisfied to some degree with the outcome of the lot casting. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, he's the one in pursuit. And remember, he chooses the means by how he's going to accomplish his will. So we're looking at lot casting, right? We're looking at two through five on the questions here. We, I underlined each question in the beginning. And we're looking at how they're all grounded in identity, right? The sailors are plying Jonah for information. Why are they plying him for information? Well, because they want to deduce which God is responsible. And that's when, uh, that's when Dasha asked her wonderful question. Now check it out. 
nationality and religion were inevitably tied in the eyes of those who lived in the ancient Near East. And I was going to make the point that we fall prey to the same genetic fallacy today. You know, oh, you're from Syria? You must be a Muslim. Oh, you're from Japan? You must be a Taoist. Oh, you're from China? You must be a Buddhist. No, (laughs) don't think like that. That's the genetic fallacy, that you are whatever religion you were, you were born into culturally. There are more Muslims coming to faith in Christianity right now through visions that God is giving them than ever before in the history of the world. It's a wonderful testimony. Read the Voice of the Martyrs literature if you don't believe that that's actually happening, and you'll find out it's happening with great frequency. And the reality of the situation is they are still stuck where they're at. And they're turning from the religion that they were to what they actually want to believe. It's our responsibility to pursue the relationship that we want to be in with whatever God it is that we want to serve. And trust me, if you're an atheist, you're still putting your faith in something. That's just the facts of the matter. Now look, Jonah is responsible. He answers the last, I'm sorry, they, know, they now know that Jonah's responsible, but they're unsatisfied with the outcome of the lot casting. So look at Jonah's response. What does he do? They fire off five questions, and he decides, I'm going to answer the last question first. Notice that verse 9, he makes no attempt to answer any of the other questions that he's been asked. Jonah cuts right to the chase. Why does Jonah cut to the chase? Because he knows what the sailors are after. He's embedded in this culture. He knows that they're after Which God is responsible? So in a single statement, he offers all of the necessary information. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh. With this statement, he admits to being the guilty party while simultaneously identifying the God who's responsible for causing the storm. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord hurled a wind on the sea. Can you imagine the look on everyone's face when Jonah speaks for the very first time in the narrative? If you're struggling to picture it, if you can't get it in your mind, I believe that verse 10 and 11 will help to paint a clear picture. So let's read them together out loud. Fear gripped the crew on a whole nother level, everybody. The fear that they had has been escalated. (laughs) I mean, look at how they respond to Jonah. What is this that you've done? Modern translation. Are you freaking kidding me, bro? How could you do this to me? (laughs) For the captain and his crew... The puzzle pieces are finally starting to come together. And the author communicates this by way of information gap. Only now does the author choose to reveal that Jonah had previously spoken with the crew. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This is like a look back to the past, right? Now, I love how John Walton unpacks this nugget of information. A... You got this option. Jonah tells him the whole long story while the sea grows more and more tempestuous. 
look, I was in my room and the Lord came to me and he spoke this and he goes down the whole long story, (laughs) everything leading up to the current circumstances, and he does this in verse nine, like I said, in the midst of the raging storm, or B, Jonah mentioned this detail in passing prior to the storm, which to me makes the most sense in light of the reality that the trip from Joppa to Tarshish would take a little over a year and the author makes no reference of time until chapter one, verse 17, when he says three days in the belly of the fish. So we don't know how much time has passed on the boat, yo. Translation, it's most probable that Jonah communicated this when he was on the run in the close of verse three when he paid the fare to charter the ship to the, with the crew. You want to buy the whole boat? To go to Tarshish? What's the deal? I'm on the run from Yahweh. Yeah, whatever. Take his money. We'll take him. We're going that way anyways. Right? Who's Yahweh? Just another god in the midst of the pantheon to these pagan Phoenician sailors. You know? Get his money. Let's go. That's right. Yeah, and if he pisses us off, we'll throw him into the ocean. Now that they've got the whole story, the crew's got the whole story now, it's time for them to ask Jonah their final question. What? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Now this is a legitimate question. It's Jonah's God who's the cause of the raging storm, and it's Jonah's behavior that's angered them. If there's anyone on the deck of this ship who can help bring resolution to the storm, guess who it is? It's Jonah. Even these pagan sailors had a firm grasp on the reality that whatever you sow, you're going to (laughs) reap. That argument is pretty thin, man. Is a Muslim going to admit that Yahweh is greater than Allah? Exactly. Yeah. It's not going to happen in a moment like that, bro especially when you're pantheistic. There's a pantheon of thousands of gods, and they have no idea where Yahweh falls on that scale. scale. That's another misconception of the church. Every, you know, these old, old people, they had knowledge of God because they came from, you know, Adam, and then they came from Noah on the boat. Bro, Abraham's father was an idol maker, Tear lost the gospel from, the, from Noah's ark landing on the mountain to him being born. And you know what? It wasn't very long. Nobody. Your money says in God we trust. Is everyone in America a Christian? Do you tell them, just look at your money, man, trust in God, and then they, they believe you? That's a thin argument, but it's an argument that the church has sat comfortably in for far too long. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. The God, I worship the God who made the land and the sea. Okay. Muslims make that same claim, except they just exchange Yahweh for Allah. And they ain't talking about Yahweh either. So, I mean, like, why do we settle for these pathetic arguments? Yeah, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. Yeah, when the sailors speak, even up until this point, they were using Elohim, but when they begin to pray, they use, Yel- they use Yahweh's name, right? But we'll get to that. Spoiler alert. If they're going to pray to their own gods, why would they have a problem praying to Yahweh? It's just another name in the midst of the pantheon. So we'll, we'll get there. But that's a good question, Rob. So look, 
The sailors had a firm grasp on what you sow, you reap. Or what you reap, you sow. So they ask him, like, what's up, dog? How do you want to handle this, yo? <laughs> it's like being in a room. You ever been in a fight? And you know it's about to go down? And you're just like, what you want to do, bro? Like, been there. <laughs> dude slit my throat in a fist fight in L.A. Another dude stabbed me in the shoulder. You know what you got to do when you're getting ready for these interactions? You got to tell yourself, it's go time, baby. <laughs> and then it's go time. You know what I mean? That's what's going on right here. <laughs> They're asking Jonah, what shall we do to you? <laughs> this is about the most easiest way that the author could communicate it. You know how sailors talk? <laughs> what the f do you think? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Well, we're talking about sailors here, you know? Like, <laughs> they would have been, you know? <laughs> Now, I don't know about you, but I find Jonah's response to be just a wee bit dramatic. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the water. <laughs> Just pick me up and throw me into the water. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine these dudes are like, are you serious? Uh, we don't know how to interact with your God, but you do. You're like the only guy who can help us. So you want us to pick you up and throw you in the water? <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Not just yet. That ain't going to happen. Had the prophet of God, I mean, listen to this line. Had the prophet of God forgotten the famous spirit-inspired words of King David that had been recorded in the historical hymnal of Israel? For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Did Jonah forget these words? Just throw me into the water. Why not just publicly repent, you doofus? <laughs> Again, John Walton asks two very necessary questions. Why such drastic measures? And why do the sailors have to throw them in, Jonah? Just jump, you weenie. <laughs> And like I said, just better yet, publicly repent and turn back to Yahweh. Look, sacrifices. The only sacrifices that God desires. These are the words of David under Mosaic legislation long before Jonah. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. If Jonah could have just remembered that, he wanted to go down. And then it hit me, Jonah would rather die than evangelize these pagan sailors or the people of Nineveh. I would rather die than see that person in heaven. And everybody in the room said, I've thought that. Everybody in the room has said, I have felt that way towards another human being who bears the image of God. Shame on us. We need to publicly repent, not just Jonah. 
Now look, historically speaking, some interpreters have been quite impressed with Jonah's willingness to sacrifice himself. That's true. Historically speaking, most interpreters have been quite impressed with Jonah's willingness to sacrifice himself. However, I believe that we've already shown via the Psalms that that way of thinking is problematic. Others throughout history, myself included, view Jonah's instructions as a reflection of his own self-interest, like Tom was just saying, he wants to go down, in, Jonah, uh, in that Jonah actually identifies death as another means of escaping the will and the word of God. Jonah wants nothing to do with God's plan. I believe that Jonah has just doubled down on his rebellion in this scene. It seems to me that Jonah would rather die than submit to God. And that's when I go, man, I've been there. Like I said in the beginning of my sermon, I live most of my life as a non-believer. I've been there. I know that feeling. And sometimes I wage war with that feeling still. Even the pagan sailors were like, bro, <laughs> that's your solution? It's a little extreme, don't you think? I mean, verse 13 displays this reality. Even if it's for a moment, the sailors initially refused to listen to Jonah. They figured at least it's worth trying to get ahead of the storm. How do we do that? Pull the sails, drop the oars, and see if we can row, gentlemen. Let's see what we can do. Can you guys read this next one for me, please? Reality began to set in when the sailors realized that they couldn't make any headway in the face of the storm. So they decided to cry out to Jonah's God no different than they had their own gods in verse 5. Verse 5 is your evidence that they didn't need to be Yahwists. They're willing to pray. It's their first response in the midst of what seems to not be just a regular storm. So why not cry out to Yahweh now? The sailors worshiped the gods of the pantheons. <laughs> now they've identified Yahweh as the source of the storm and they've identified Yahweh on the testimony of Jonah. So they just simply decide it's in our best interest to cry out to this guy's God because this guy's God is the one who's responsible for the storm, right? My deity doesn't have to go to the next deity to go to the next deity to hope that it gets to the right one. We now know who the right one is, so let's just see if we can talk to that one. <laughs> I mean, death is inevitable, so, you know, it's kind of like, shoot him while you got him. <laughs> Yahweh is the source of the storm. One commentator notes that the crew's request was that they not perish for Jonah's life. They're asking that in the end, God would not hold them responsible for the murder of Jonah. As modern students, we need to understand that they're not claiming innocence on Jonah's behalf before Yahweh. That's not what they're doing. They're simply pointing out that the prophet has done nothing to deserve death at their hands. They're saying, look, he's offended you. In all actuality, he's done nothing deserving of death at our hands. So when we throw him into the water, put his blood on him, not on us. Saints, do we see what's going on here? The prophet of God who has experienced the call of God continually refuses to be the instrument of God. In contrast, the pagan sailors see that the storm will not relent. 
Therefore, they perceive that it is the will of God to hurl Jonah into the sea. So they pick him up and they throw him in. And what do you know? The sea ceases from its raging. The Hebrew implies that it immediately stood still. The fact that the threat of death no longer haunts the crew reveals a wonderful truth about the heart of God. In the midst of humanity's lack of understanding, God willfully chooses to extend mercy to those who do not yet know him. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I wonder if that's what James was thinking about when he was writing his letter. Man, Jonah is God. Jonah's God is merciful. My God is merciful. Jonah's God is gracious. My God is gracious. Has always had a heart for the nations. And it's on full display in 4K right here in the book of Jonah. God willfully chooses to extend mercy to those who have yet to know him or do not know him. The reality of this claim is undeniable when one considers the words of Jonah in chapter 4, verse 2. For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. One of the things that I love most about the book of Jonah is this right here. It just reaches back into Torah and it says, this is the God that redeemed a people for himself. And I say, I want to be a part of that people. And God says, I've invited you into that relationship, my son, through the finished work of Christ. Do you put your faith in that finished work? And I say, yes, Lord. And he says, you're in, baby. He gives me his spirit. He makes me clean. And then he gives me the authority to walk in ways that I could never walk before. As we prepare to close out, amen, right? Yeah. As we prepare to close out our study, I need you guys to read this last slide. <laughs> As we prepare to close out the study, right, I'd like to address one last modern misconception. Two. The sacrifices did not take place on the deck of the ship. Do you really expect me to believe that after hurling both cargo and a passenger overboard, the sailors in the midst of a raging storm were like, not these animals, they're for sacrifice. That's not what the text says. It says they threw the cargo. They threw the cargo. Got to deal with what the text says. They threw the cargo. <laughs> Plus, the ship's made of wood, yo. You know how much fire it takes to burn an entire corpse? You're not going to be making a fire like that on a boat that's made out of wood <laughs> in the middle of the sea where you can't see the land. Because what happens when that sacrifice, fire spreads? Everybody's dead. <laughs> Plus you make sacrifices in temples, yo. Not anywhere you want. So the sacrifice did not take place on the deck of the ship. Two. I know, man, when you start poking at what people have believed their whole lives, they're like, I don't like this sermon. I don't like this preacher, man. He makes me feel like I don't know nothing about the book of Jonah. I didn't know nothing either. <laughs> the last pastor that I was in could do this book in one sermon. Yeah, and I bet he made a ton of mistakes. 
I bet he preached just what he heard five other pastors preach and was like, oh, I can remember half of that stuff. It's pathetic, yo. The state of the church and its teaching is pathetic. Ask Rob. He sat at home for years. He said, I watched some of the best preaching online and some of the worst. <laughs> Two. Are we aware that cult ritual sacrifices were a part of all cultures throughout the ancient Near East? Look, ritual sacrifice was not isolated or unique to Israel. Well, it's obvious that the calming of the sea would have a lifelong effect on the sailors. The text gives no indication that it had a life-changing effect on the sailors. There's no mention of repentance. There's certainly no indication that they renounced the gods of the pantheon. And therefore, we can't say that they converted to a form of monotheistic Judaism. You're going to read that into the Bible, just like every other teacher that taught you, they converted because Jonah preached a sermon. No, he didn't. If Jonah preached a sermon when he said, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of gods who made the land and the sea, then Joel Osteen's the best exegete ever. If that's a sermon... Are you kidding me? Oh, well, you don't really know what the language implies. Oh, no, I do. <laughs> I got all the language right here in my reference list. If you want to go, we can go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, pull out the Hebrew. Oh, well, you're not a grammarian. I don't need to be. We have technology now that gives me access to everything. And I did the work. So you're reading it into the Bible when you say, they became Christians. No, they didn't. <laughs> There's no such thing as a Christian yet. Christ is long yet to be born. The church isn't called Christians until the book of Acts. At best, you could call them a Yahwist, and there's no evidence for that. No repentance, no evidence that they renounced their gods, the gods of the pantheon, and no way for us to say that they converted to monotheism. Did they circumcise themselves? They start going to participate in Yom Kippur every year? Did they do the festival of weeks, the festival of booths? I mean, come on, if it's in there, show me. So what I'm saying, James, how often are we like, where do people get these ideas, bro? Every phone call, I'm like, dude, did you hear what this guy said? Ah! It's going to take us 10 years to come back from that one. Look, you might be like, I don't know, man. I don't know, man. I've heard a lot of sermons. I've read a lot of books that say these guys became Christians. Ask yourself, is it true that everyone who comes into contact with the power of the Lord will be awed? The answer is yes. But ask yourself, does that awe necessarily produce authentic relationship? The answer is no. The answer is no. Yeah, so that's where a lot of people argue that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fear in the Hebrew can mean worship. It is a, it's how we translate them, right? But you're correct. Like, that's an argument that the church has, right? And if that's your argument, hold it. I'm just not gonna be in the same camp as you on this and we're gonna have to figure out how to do life together. That's how we do around here. But it's actually like, I think, just textually irresponsible to make claims that the Bible just doesn't make. 
Now, I understand, like, I'm, like I wrote, that this is a massive claim, so I figured some evidence would be in order. So we'll close with this, right? I've already referenced Psalm 51. Jonah should have knew better than to tell them to throw him into the water. He should have just publicly repented. If he knew that God was going to relent with Nineveh, then chances are God would have gave him the same grace on the boat. Amen? Now, I want us to consider some other examples. Let's use these slides real quick. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25 through 29. Before I read this, I want, to ask you, I want you to ask yourself, have you ever heard a preacher preach that Ahab is in heaven? Well, nobody's in heaven yet, so that's their first mistake. Have you ever heard a preacher preach that, Yahweh, that Ahab's in paradise, awaiting a resurrection body? I never have, but they're going to tell you that these pagan sailors converted. Let's find out. Let's, do we want a steady hermeneutic church or not? You know, that's what I'm after today. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the peoples of Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth on his flesh, and he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before? me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. We talked about conditional prophecy in sermon number one. Here's another example. Thus saith the Lord, Ahab repents, God changes his mind. That's how it happens. If you do this, then this. If you don't do this, then this. But God said this would happen to Ahab. Thus says the Lord, go read the narrative. And then Ahab does something. God's not unaware that he's going to do this, but the prophet spoke, thus says the Lord anyways. And then God said, now Elijah, go tell him this. Now, Ahab repented, right? He turned from his wicked ways, right? This is all language in the book of uh, Jonah, <laughs> But do we know how Ahab died? We're about to read the narrative, but let me give you some context. He's surrounded by false prophets who are prophesying that he should go into battle. And one prophet that the Lord sends comes and mocks him. And he tells, the, he tells Jehoiakim, I told you that he always says foolish things about me. He never says anything favorably about me. He's like, go to war then, bro. <laughs> Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale, armor, and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. Verse 37, so the king died and was brought to Samaria, and there they buried the king in Samaria, the northern capital of Israel. Look, Ahab is not truly repentant. From the tearing of his clothes and the putting on of the sackcloth and humbling himself before God, it takes no time at all before he picks up the words of the false prophets again. And he rides confidently into battle. And the prophet of God, who was authentic, <laughs> he didn't have very nice things to say about that. 
That's a divine counsel passage. It's one of my favorites. I would encourage you guys to get familiar with it. So look, I already asked you guys, have you heard a pastor or a preacher or a teacher say that Ahab's in paradise? No. But they preach that these Ninevites are Yahwists. Some of them say Christians. Let's consider the gospel accounts for you note-takers and for the sake of time. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 through 58, and Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. Lots of unbelief. So much unbelief that Jesus can't do signs and wonders, and he only does a few. But the people in the town witnessed the few that he did. Were they struck by awe and reverence for Jesus? Did they convert to Christianity? Or did they reject the Messiah as he was in their presence performing signs and wonders? And the answer is yes. Well, if you can reject the God of the universe incarnate in Christ doing signs and wonders and causing awe in you in the Gospels, why can't you do it in the Old Testament? What about Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26? Write that down. The paralytic is getting healed, and the Pharisees are actually blocking the way. And so they go up on the roof, and they empty out the roof, and they drop him down, and Jesus heals the paralytic. Do the Pharisees convert? No. They get more pissed. They get more hard-hearted. Again, we're just asking ourselves, do we have a steady hermeneutic in our approach to the Scriptures? Does all and experiencing signs and wonders always lead one to authentic relationship with God. No, it doesn't. When I read this, I ask myself, did the pagan sailors give up all to follow Yahweh alone? If the Pharisees wouldn't do it and the peoples in Jesus' hometown wouldn't do it, why would I expect anybody else to be able to do it? Look at this, Matthew 19, verse 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about this? What is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all of these I've kept. I've done them all. What do I still lack? <laughs> Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possessed and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away with sorrowful for he had great possessions. When I read this, I ask myself, did the pagan Ninevites and the pagan sailors on the ship give up all to follow Jesus? Did they give up all to follow Yahweh? There's no indication in the text that they did that. So you're going to read that into the Bible if you're going to say that they converted. Yep. It's 
spirit-filled believers who are like, God doesn't heal anymore. God doesn't do miracles anymore. Tongues isn't for today. Interpretation isn't for today. There are Christians who actually stand firm on that. My favorite example, or one of them, is Zechariah. Are you kidding me? He's offering incense in the temple, and the angel Gabriel comes and stands before him. You think he's speaking any words that God didn't give him? The answer is no. These are the words of God. Messenger, Malachi, that's the translation of angel. Messenger, and he tells Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will give birth. How am I going to know for sure? (laughs) I'm going to shut your mouth for your lack of faith, you fool. That's how you're going to know for sure. I mean, like, come on, man. Signs and wonders, just don't do it. They don't do it. They're wonderful, and they're encouraging to the body of believers who believes that God can and will, and we know that he does. But they're not. They're not going to just bring people into right relationship with God. They'll get one miracle. They'll want another one. It'll become the gimme the genie bottle of Jesus. It doesn't work like that. I don't know about you, but my goal is to employ a consistent hermeneutic. Why would we be willing to go beyond what the text teaches in the book of Jonah yet reject the likes of Ahab and these others? Saints, if we're required to reassess our perspective on the book of Jonah, it makes me wonder what else we're required to reassess our perspective on. And there's a lot. Me first. It's an honest question, yo. And at AC Squared, we don't want tradition to drive our interpretation of the text. We want the text to drive our interpretation of the text. So we've covered a lot, and it's 12 o'clock. I had time for a Q&A set aside, but you guys have asked a ton of questions. If you have more, for the sake of respecting everybody's schedule, come and talk to me. I'm available, all right? Question everything. Challenge everything, because questions demand answers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you that you're confronting us in the midst of reading this wonderful book, Lord. We're no different than Jonah. We need you no different than Jonah needed you. God, I pray for this church and for churches all over the world, and I pray for the lost as well, God, that we would turn to you and that we would faithfully and loyally serve you. And that when you pursue us with the storm, Lord, (laughs) that we wouldn't seek to appease you with sacrifice, but we would just repent and relent of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.